This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... It is safe to say that the declaration before us may be destined to occupy an honourable place in the procession of positive landmarks in human history. We stand today at the threshold of a great event, both in the life of the United Nations and in the life of mankind. This Universal Declaration of Human Rights may well become the international Magna Carta of all men everywhere. Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen Folks. Now, as many of our listeners may know, it's 75 years since the world united around a groundbreaking document, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. What has to happen in this world so that we come to this never again attitude? It was supposed to be the world's definitive never again moment. The terrible violence and brutality of the Second World War would be consigned to history. So how's that working out? Inside Geneva asked the men and women who have led the UN's human rights work over the years. Yes, it is an impossible mission to try to guarantee all human rights, social, economical, political, cultural, of the whole people of the world. I remember feeling to myself, I'm going to get on top of this somehow. This job is impossible. Everything is very, very difficult. It's extremely hard work, but I'm somehow going to get on top of it. And it got better. The United States has not ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child or CEDAW, Convention Against Discrimination of Women. And they told me that's because they're a democracy. They have their own institutions. How do you confront governments who are violating human rights, especially if they are superpowers? To be the megaphone for the denunciation of injustices, at some point becomes counterproductive because it just illuminates the how impotent the system is. Someone asked me, possibly even you, <laughs> asked me about Donald Trump. And I said, yes, I think he is dangerous. And uh, that became the headline out of the, out of the press conference. There was lots of pressure, lots of criticism, but you know what? Um... There was this saying in the office, when everybody criticizes, we're not going back. In today's edition, we're going to hear highlights of those in-depth interviews. The job of UN Human Rights Commissioner has been called the UN's hardest. No handing out food, medicines or shelter. Instead, the human rights chief has to tell governments when they're treating their citizens badly. So why take the job? Let's start with Jose Ayala Lasso, a diplomat from Ecuador. He became the very first commissioner when the job was created in the mid-1990s. Indeed, I was uh, always, during my diplomatic career, uh, interested in, uh, in human rights. And uh, I dedicated my life in diplomacy to work for uh, establishing a new international order with recognition of the obligations of the states regarding the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. There was a sort of different interpretations about the validity of the declaration. 
some people say that it was a declaration. It is a non-compulsory and obligatory law for the states. And others consider that the principles established in the declaration were so important that they should be applied as a, a law which does not need the acceptance of the states, but they have the force to impose so. And so I tried to support this second position. Let me come to your time in office. While you were UN Human Rights Commissioner, there was Rwanda. This must have been very difficult. Indeed. I took office on the beginning of March, if I remember it well. And less than a week after taking office in Geneva, I was observing what was happening in Rwanda. And it was absolutely necessary to do something. So I decided to, to go to Rwanda to see what can I do? What could I do in those circumstances? My office was not yet really established. I had not a dollar. And I went with two advisors. And what I saw in Rwanda was terrible. I was uh, obliged to walk together with the general, uh, the Canadian chef of Dermot Forces, in a land where you found hundreds and thousands of killed people in the most outrageous manner. So it was terrible. The impression I received was an impression of drama, of criminality, of uh, not to believe on human nature and the goodness of human nature. But uh, that was my sentimental reaction. I was also an administrative officer of the United Nations, and I was obliged to do something to resolve the problem. The only uh, actions I considered useful in those moments were to talk with the government, which was presided by the, the Hutus, and to talk with the chef of the rebellion, General Kagami Tutsi. You said you reacted in a, you described it as a sentimental way, a human way, many would say, but you also had to do something. But still confronted by what you saw in Rwanda, did you ever wonder, what's the point? Can I achieve anything? Yeah, yeah. When I was appointed, many officers of the United Nations ambassadors and of the American government offered a dinner to me. And one of the senators of the United States made a speech. And he said to me in the speech, you have accepted an impossible mission. And I said, yes, it is an impossible mission to try to guarantee the effectiveness of all human rights, social, economic, and political, cultural, even the right to development of the whole people of the world. I said, that is an impossible but something should begin. Ayala Lasso was the beginner. Next in the human rights hot seat, Ireland's Mary Robinson. Well, I grew up in the west of Ireland. My parents were both medical doctors, though my mother didn't practice uh, as a GP after five of us arrived in six years in a good Catholic tradition. Um, I was wedged between those brothers, and that gave me a very early interest in human rights and gender equality and using my elbows and everything it took. Because my parents would say to me over and over again, 
you have the same opportunities. We will give you the same chances. We will we regard you as totally equal to your forebrothers. But Irish society wasn't doing that. Mary Robinson became a lawyer, then President of Ireland, and then she was asked to become UN Human Rights Chief. All my knowledgeable friends said, Mary, I wouldn't take that job. Anyway, um, when I arrived in Geneva, I found that our office was in the back of the Palais des Nations, a very low position. And I went on a very difficult trip back to Rwanda, where I had had three welcomed visits as president of Ireland. But when I arrived wearing my UN hat, they utterly disregarded and, in effect, kind of humiliated me. I had difficulty meeting Kagame, whom I had met at all the other visits. Um, Why do you think that was? uh, Because of the UN. The UN record, you know, they were they were very anti-UN. Uh, when I went back to Ireland after that visit to um, Uganda first, and then Rwanda, and then South Africa, um, I was exhausted. I was taking sleeping pills, and I was actually my mental health was being affected. And um, I had a brother, a doctor, and said, "Mary, you're on the verge of a mental breakdown." And when I heard my brother saying that, I thought, "No, I'm not. No way." And I threw away the sleeping pills. And I kind of took another fortnight to rest. And I came back and I remember feeling to myself, I'm going to get on top of this somehow. This job is impossible. Everything is very, very difficult. It's extremely hard work, but I'm somehow going to get on top of it. And it got better. But just the second person to hold the job, she still found she had to struggle to get human rights on the UN's agenda. Kofi Annan had introduced his reform he took up the post in January 1997, you know, some months earlier. And he, in July, he had his reform package, which he had highlighted the importance of four areas, peace and security, development, um, economic and humanitarian. And he said human rights has to be part of all of those. So the High Commissioner for Human Rights uniquely would be a member of all four. Well, I can tell you, when I was there, human rights was sp- spoken about. When I was not there, nobody else was speaking about human rights and nobody else was there to speak about human rights. So I gave a Romanes lecture in Oxford and I said that the United Nations had lost the plot on human rights. And I gave chapter and verse of some of the problems. And the following morning, I got a call from my boss saying, Mary, you can't criticize the UN. You're in the UN now. And I said, well, when you appointed me, Coffee, you, you, or Secretary General, you said I should remain an outsider mentally for as long as possible. And he said, no, no, um, you can't criticize the UN when you're in it. And I said, well, I'm going to do my job as best I can and left it at that. Do you see that looking back as perhaps one of your biggest achievements is helping the UN refine the plot on human rights? I I think possibly helping to do that because um, over and over again, I kept saying to myself, I represent the first three words of the Charter of the United Nations we the peoples. That's what I represent, not the states. I realized I had no power as such. I had no big stick. I had no executive way of trying to get people to do what I dearly wanted them to do. So the only way that I could bring attention to human rights problems was going there. And I I found myself hugely, my batteries would get charged by the belief in human rights of those who knew because they were deprived of their rights, how important they were, whether they were voting rights, whether they were you know, economic and social rights, whether they were uh, rights to a fair, uncorrupt political system, whatever. 
With the start of the new millennium, it was Louise Arbour of Canada's turn to take the job. I was educated in an extremely homogeneous environment in a in a kind of girls Catholic convent school that became a classical college and so essentially I was educated by women I was raised by my mother just with my brother my father left when I was quite young and then I was educated by nuns with a bunch of girls until I was 20 years old and went to law school so maybe my interest in pluralism and may come in reaction to having been so cloistered, is that the word, or sort of restricted in my horizons uh, when I was growing up. Arbour had already combined her legal training with human rights. Serving on the International Tribunal for Former Yugoslavia, she indicted former Serb leader Slobodan Milosevic for war crimes. I would have never thought that in my lifetime, criminal law would take this international positioning. After the Nuremberg trials in Tokyo, despite all kinds of multilateral efforts, it looked like this was not going to happen. And then, frankly, quite miraculously, when you think of it, the Security Council of the United Nations, of all places, of all political places, added criminal law to its otherwise pretty empty toolbox of conflict management. Now, this This had nothing to do with me, but it was revolutionary. I don't think the Security Council has done anything that imaginative since. And that's why the indictment of Milosevic was important. If I did not firmly believe that one day he would stand trial in The Hague, I wouldn't waste my time doing this really hard job. I'd move on and do something that is more anchored in reality. It was anchored in reality, even though at the time I signed the indictment, I could not have written the script on how this would all unfold, but I was really persuaded. You know, the long arm of the law, the law is very patient. And yes, and I still feel the same way today. And like Mary Robinson, she wasn't sure about the UN human rights job. Unlike a lawyer or a judge, the UN human rights chief can't prosecute or sentence. When you arrive in the role of High Commissioner for Human Rights, I think that's part of the dilemma. How do you use your voice? Because I think to be the megaphone for the denunciation of injustices at some point becomes counterproductive because it just illuminates how impotent the system is. It's like you scream in the wilderness and it yields absolutely no remedial action. Interestingly, just earlier today, I was talking to somebody about the fact that we're going to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Do you think this century there has been, maybe dating from 9-11, an erosion? Do we, do we care about them less? Do we respect them less? Uh, yes. Yes, I don't think we're in a particularly good place, which doesn't mean that the project is over and we should just abandon an ideal that I still believe is more than worth pursuing. I think the human rights framework as an organizing principle for humanity is unbeatable. I think it's more than a worthwhile project. And I see a couple of fault lines in the project, the dominance of the Western embrace of the agenda 
has had, I think, two consequences. The first one is, as the West was promoting its so-called values, others started to notice that, happily for the West, its values always coincided with its interests, which I think generated a lot of skepticism about the bona fides of the entire Mm. enterprise. I think that's the first consequence. And the second one is, the West, and I say the West, I mean, we understand each other. I mean, Europe, America... We're always in a position of asking others to do something that was hard for them to do. But when it came a time where the West was asked to do something that was hard for it to do, it choked. And the examples of, I think, the post 9-11 world showed how the U.S. was very quick to even reconsider fundamental norms like the absolute prohibition on torture all of a sudden. Well, it was just so inconvenient that it could be overlooked. And now if we look at the entire migration agenda, it's even more apparent how, for once, you know, when Europe and America are asked, and that includes Canada, are asked to do something that's hard for them to do this time, they're nowhere to be seen. Was it time then for a human rights chief from the Global South South Africa's Navi Pillay was next. We grew up under apartheid and we realized there's something very unfair here. Our teachers were afraid to talk about, you know, they would teach us democracy in Greece, but not why don't we have democracy in South Africa? Because if they did touch on any subject that the regime thought was political, the teachers would lose their jobs. And I know one who was summarily fired. And all she did was cut out press cuttings of topical news and put it up on a chart in her classroom. This was in high school. So therefore, the the fear about something not right out there and the urge to do something about it. We were, I think, quite an alert lot there in high school. Like Arbor, Pile was a lawyer and she had also served on an international tribunal, this one for Rwanda. And she too turned down the human rights job when first offered it. I said no, because I had already packed my winter coats away. I was coming back home to sunny South Africa, where I would have had the opportunity to serve on the Constitutional Court. That was my plan. And when Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary General, interviewed me, he said, no, 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 we need you now. The states need you. We can't ha- not have a high commissioner. You know, you have to respond to a call that's made to you, a trust that people place in you. Really, I mean, these look look like highly laudable goals. So if you ask me, so what moved me from where I wanted to go to this was the Secretary General saying, we need you now. What, Looking back, what were your biggest challenges? Or do you have standout successes? I mean, this is a hard job in the sense that you you have to tell governments they're behaving badly. I'll tell you what they said to me, ambassadors and, you know, um, politicians, heads of state and so on. They respected that I was a judge and as a judge that I listen. So even Israel complimented me in bringing a balance meaning I included their point of view in my reports. That's what you have to do. You 
you know, you, you stick to the UN principles. I would constantly reminded, remind them, you passed this international convention, yeah, and you have, you've undertaken obligations, so you have to carry that out. Did you feel that big, powerful countries, we could say China, Russia, the United States, do they escape scrutiny because of their power? They do. They do. You know, I mean, the United States has not ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child or CEDAW, Convention Against Discrimination of Women. And they told me that's because they're a democracy. They have their own institutions. But they do escape international scrutiny that they push for in respect of other states. Yes, there is some double standards there. People need to be reminded that they have a role to play. So if a good law is passed there nationally or internationally, it's not going to be implemented. It's not governments who woke up one day and decided, oh, we've got to do more for human rights. No, it's really skewed. It's bad in the lack of accountability by politicians as soon as they get into power. I often wonder, for instance, why do they need so much security for themselves against us, the people? It should be the other way around. You don't need to surround yourself with security as if we, the people, are going to attack them. I think then for after 75 years of this, there has to be a revolutionary change where people should realize their own power and worth and reassert and demand that they be included in all discussions. The collective opposition to apartheid I see all these as victories of having this universal declaration of human rights, a common standard that every state actually has agreed. No state has distanced itself from that treaty. So I see hope in that, and I feel these are the tools that civil society has. So we're beginning to see maybe a pattern. Dedicated people who take the job, even though they know it hasn't got much power, apart from the power to speak out. Our next human rights chief, Zaid Rad al-Hussein from Jordan, became famous for that, though he admits he didn't think much about human rights growing up. No, I I was far too immature and delinquent to to be thinking lofty ideas and profound thoughts. Um, It really was my first proper working experience after I uh, did my military service in Jordan, uh, which took me to UN peacekeeping and um, two years of service in the Balkans from early 1994 to early 1996, that um, first exposed me to to the enormity of um, uh, atrocity crimes, uh, the overwhelming emotional response one feels, the revulsion one experiences, uh, the senselessness of it all. There's nothing that can justify killing or destruction like that, nothing at all. So when he arrived in Geneva, Zaid was determined to make the human rights agenda loud and clear. I knew from my experience in the former Yugoslavia that if the UN Secretariat believed, and I think mistakenly, that it's in the friend's business, it produces catastrophic results. The UN is not there to become friendly with the member states. We were in the respect business, not in the friends business. 
For me, it mattered little whether they hated me or they disliked me or so forth. I think the point was, were they wary of me enough to take me seriously and to respond in kind? And I think that's what matters. And if you're concerned about maintaining easy relationships or being comfortable, then that's not the job for you. I, I'm sorry. I, that's my view of it. I sort of felt I knew I could push and governments could take it. And in many respects, ambassadors would come after the telling off that I would give them, would come up to me privately and say, you know, my government deserved it. And thank you for saying it. And I'm going to oppose you publicly. But it was the right thing to say. You very famously made a speech about xenophobes, populists, and racists. And you were talking about political leaders, Viktor Orban in Hungary, Nigel Farage, UK, and notably Donald Trump in the United States. Yeah, it was halfway through my um, my term as High Commissioner. And I think from the initial two years, I thought, well, whoever the High Commissioner is, you're going to have and face ad hominem attacks, even if you were only to speak critically of the conduct of states when they were violating the rights of their own people and very much against the obligations that they themselves took on. And I think I got to halfway and I thought, well, it's not pointed enough. And um, it's not just governments because governments are not monolithic structures. It's individuals who head these governments who pour this poison into their societies. And it's a well-known poison. It's not a new poison, what they're doing. And so I felt um, when I had the occasion to to speak in The Hague, I felt it was the right time to. And I think I was, yes, the first, if not the only UN official to go uh, after these leaders uh, or so-called leaders, because they may be leaders in official sense, in official sense, but there's nothing about them that I, I think you know, there's, no, there's very little about them that I'd want to see in my in my own children. I mean, you know, the opposite of someone uh, like Nelson Mandela, who's a real leader, you know, someone who you deeply respect. In response to Donald Trump on the campaign trail saying that he would torture, you suggested that his election could be dangerous. Do you think that prediction was yes, proven I right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I remember the occasion. You may even have been there. It was a press conference. Um, and uh, I think I spoke for about an hour and a half about everything else. And then someone asked me, possibly even you, <laughs> asked me about Donald Trump. And I said, yes, I think he he's dangerous. And uh, that became the headline out of the, out of the press conference. Um, I mean, how could you not think that? I mean, how could anyone not think that? Anyone, any thinking person, that is. Everyone brings their own style to the job, but our next human rights chief brought what no one else had, her own personal experience of repression and violations. Michelle Bachelet grew up under Chile's violent military dictatorship, but always believed in human rights. Yes, even though maybe at that time, period of time, I might not call it human rights because probably I was not so aware about the concepts and the universal declaration and so on. But since I was a child, I was always trying to 
if I would say, ensure that people will receive the dignity, the respect that they deserve. But those views in 1970s Chile could be dangerous. Bachelet's father, who supported a constitutional democracy, was arrested. My father was in prison. He died because of torture. And I mean, he was in prison because he was a constitutionalist. He was against the coup d'etat and the military itself. They took him and, and tortured him. And so he had a heart attack and he died because of the heart attack in the, in the jail. And then, of course, we were against the dictatorship. So we did political work, but underground, of course. So once, once and that there was a friend of my mom, and she and the torture gave the name of my mother. And then they went to his home and they took us, me and my mom, to Villa Grimaldi. That's a, that's a torture center. I mean, what, what you didn't know at that time when you were in those places that you were disappeared. Your family didn't know where you were. The thing is not to know what is going to happen, how long that is going to last. What will be, I mean, of course, they separated me from my mom as well. So I didn't know who she was. Huh? And um, yeah, but on the other hand, you felt that all those things were so also what was going on in the country, that you needed to be as strong as possible and not to fail and not to, how could I say, uh, confess things that could harm other people. When democracy returned to Chile, Bachelet became a successful politician, serving twice as her country's president. Then, just as she was planning to spend more time with her family, UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres asked her to become human rights chief. At the beginning, I was saying to him, look, my mom is old. The truth is I've been living in my family for a long time in a second place. But the situation was very difficult in the world. It was not as now, okay, it's even worse, but, but it was very difficult. So he, he told me, please, Michelle, please apply because really I, I need you. And I, asked, I talked to my mom. She was at that time like 90 years old. And she said to me, go ahead. Go ahead, because this is very important, and so on. Bachelet began to research what the job required. I started reading, and one of the articles that really impacted me is it was the impossible job. <laughs> because the, the high commissioner has to be the voice of the boss, so we have to denounce situations that needs to be known and try to ensure that governments do the right thing. But on the other hand, you need to support governments. You need to build trust with them. It's a very complex because if you are telling you you are a bad guy or bad government because you are violating the rights of your people, but on the other hand, ask them, I want to support you. In that sense, I feel that the, the political experience is very useful for that because you had had to negotiate or to put yourself in the shoes of the other person. Most complex of all, the UN's approach to China and widespread evidence of oppression of the Uyghur Muslim community. Bachelet had commissioned a report, but then waited and waited to publish it. Pressures came from everywhere. Uh, every time I had meetings with the European Union, the question will come and maybe then when you come, etc. Uh, so probably because I understand what politics is and what geopolitics is, I knew they was part of the job. I knew this will happen anyway. And I used to tell them, look, if you ask me not to publish this, then tomorrow, another big country will call me and say, no, publish this. And then another big country will come. So then the only thing I can do is to go back on because I have to do my job. I have to, if I commit to something, I will do it. And I won't, I won't give it to my successor, the task of doing it. I would. 
it might take me long because I needed to be serious, professional, to give the opportunities to everyone to give their arguments and their, uh, uh, their experiences. And then we needed to make uh, something that we feel it is serious. So there was lots of pressure, lots of criticism, but you know what? Um, there was this saying in the office when everybody criticizes, you're not going back. It's only one part criticizes you're doing it. <laughs> you're something wrong. But if everybody means that, okay, you're trying to do your things. It was not easy, but I think you need to do what you need. The report came out on Bachelet's last day in office. It was serious, hard-hitting, suggesting Beijing's treatment of Uyghurs could be a crime against humanity. But the delay overshadowed her other work challenging institutional racism, and it highlighted again the challenge UN human rights faces when superpowers become violators. And now, Austrian Volker Turk has been in the job for a year. He's determined to get back to basics. He even has a fraying copy of the Universal Declaration in his office, given to him at high school more than 40 years ago. In light of the history of my own country, Holocaust, its own atrocities that was committed by Austrians during the Second World War, it was very formative for me to actually really say, okay, what has to happen in this world so that we come to this never again attitude. So this never again, the history of my country, the fact that we were on the edge of the Iron Curtain were very, very important parts of my upbringing. The nuclear threat as well. I remember as a child, I was always very worried. I was always happy when the clouds were up there because I thought that there wouldn't be anything. So it was, it was very strange, you know, because you were in this environment of, of threats as well, different threats than today. But nonetheless, as a child, I could remember the, the fear about this. And I always wanted to fight for peace. I was very early on interested in, in other cultures, in other parts of the world, and in human rights. And it started actually when I was 15 year old during my English classes. The professor gave, a, gave us a copy of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which I still keep up to this day. I will show you a, a compiled sort of, of copy of it, which I still have. But Turk is confronted with huge challenges. There are 55 conflicts raging in the world right now. Some fear those rules and values we agreed on 75 years ago are crumbling. We cannot afford to see that. We cannot afford that human rights becomes the collateral damage of geopolitics or of, or of any of the crises that we see. I mean, we still have we have 55 conflicts at the moment one of the highest numbers since the end of the Second World War, about a quarter of humanity lives in violent, fragile conflict areas, which is, is horrifying. We have the traffic... I mean, I want to make the comparison with traffic because we actually have traffic regulations and they exist because otherwise people would get killed. That's the same on the human rights front and that's why the Universal Declaration of, of Human Rights is so important. Yes, there are people who are violating traffic regulations, as there are people who violate human rights law, sometimes egregiously, as we, as we see now. It doesn't mean that this takes away the fundamental centrality of the norms, because if we didn't have the norms, we wouldn't even know what to measure it against, and we wouldn't be able to hold people to account as well. So I, I think it's important to remember that, and I would see them more as temporary setbacks, terrible setbacks, but we cannot afford to lose the wisdom that comes from human rights norms. 
what and how then should we celebrate the 75th anniversary? We actually commemorate the 75th anniversary and it's really important that societies, member states at different levels, everyone who is part of the ecosystem reflects on the achievements, the successes, but also the failures and learns from them. And we need to look also into the future. We cannot afford just to stay in the present. We need to learn from our crisis today to make it better in the future. And I hope that if there's one single message that comes across, that the centrality of human rights has to be much more pronounced than ever before. Who could disagree? Certainly not all our former human rights chiefs. You have the law. Now push for implementation. Ask your governments the difficult questions. We should not lose our faith in the capacity of human beings to act correctly. I mean, the Universal Declaration is still valid because it gives sort of the minimal, if I would say, standards how we can live together. Human rights is the answer. Everyone has these core of human rights. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. But this is who we are. What we're aiming at is to create a better human being. And that's what we're trying to do with the human rights agenda, just to better improve ourselves and our conduct. And who can argue with that? If you came from another planet and just looked at the human rights framework, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, all the, the treaties, the conventions, the, the work of the treaty bodies, you think you've arrived in heaven. Why is it not the case? <laughs> Why indeed, that's a question we should all perhaps be asking our governments, our friends, our neighbours and ourselves. That brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. My thanks to all the human rights commissioners who so generously shared their time and their thoughts with me. And if what you've heard here has whetted your appetite, you can hear each of these exclusive interviews in full on Inside Geneva – Each has their own individual episode. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts. We hope the series has inspired you, our listeners, to think of ways to celebrate the Universal Declaration and to uphold human rights. You can tell us what you think of the series by writing to us at InsideGeneva at SwissInfo.ch and stay tuned for our next episode – Out on December 26th, we'll bring you our annual journalist special. UN correspondents tell us what they made of 2023 and what they predict for 2024. Don't miss it. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swissinfo, the international public media company of Switzerland – Available in many languages as well as English, check out our other content at www.swissinfo.ch. I'm Imogen Folks. Thanks again for listening, and do join us next time on Inside Geneva.
Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.